Hello and welcome to the SAE Tomorrow Today podcast. I'm your host, Grayson Brulte. On today's episode, we're honored to have Rhonda Walthall, fellow Integrated Aircraft Health Management System, Collins Aerospace. Welcome to the podcast, Rhonda. Thank you. It's great to be here. Oh, we're super excited. This is a really interesting topic and can't wait to dive into it with you. When did you first become interested in aerospace? Was there an experience or defining moment that sparked your interest? I grew up in a small town in southwestern Ohio. And at that time, smart girls grew up to be school teachers. And I knew that I wanted to do something different. Neil Armstrong actually lived in a town that was near my my town. And I would drive by his home and always try and catch a, a glimpse of him. And I always dreamed that I would too grow up to be a an astronaut someday. So I really wanted to be an astronaut initially. And then I decided that I knew my vision was really, really bad. So there was really no realistic way for me to be a pilot or let alone an astronaut. So I decided, well, I'll just become an astronomer. And then I decided that I really didn't want to work at nighttime. So I started thinking more and more about what I could do in aerospace. And I decided that I would become an aeronautical and astronautical engineer. And I followed in the moon steps of Neil Armstrong to Purdue. He was a Purdue alumnus. So I attended Purdue and I, I didn't know at the time if I'd end up doing aerospace or aeronautical engineering, but it turned out that I ended up in aeronautical engineering and I've really enjoyed my career. And you've done something really interesting. In the early 90s, you were a principal flight test engineer on the McDonnell Douglas C-17 program at Edwards Air Force Base in California. Looking back at that experience and putting into context your previous statement, what role have you the C-17 played in history, and what are your thoughts on that program and the role you played? Well, I'm very proud of my involvement in the flight tests and evaluation of the C-17 Globemaster. I was the first civilian woman to ever fly on a C-17. I conducted all of the performance testing, all the engine testing, steady state and transient testing, and in-flight and engine ground starting. And to this day, I still get really excited whenever I see a C-17 either flying or at an airport or even in a movie. So I think back on my days on the C-17 program, and I consider them as some of the best experiences I have ever had. And I've maintained friendships with people from the test team, and they've gone out to have a tremendous impact on the aerospace industry since then. And we share a common bond in the the history that we played on the C-17 program. I mean, the program has been remarkably successful, heavy lift aircraft for both the U.S. Air Force and for the Royal Air Forces in Australia and Canada and, and England. And I just know that the work that I did in getting that aircraft certified, I'm, I'm just very proud of it. And I, I'm just very excited to still see it flying. That's, that's wonderful. And we've interviewed other individuals in the aerospace on previous podcasts. One of them was Dale Tuff from Siemens. And he worked on aircraft. There's a sense of pride every time he sees one at an air show. He's like, I worked on that. And there's this, there's this incredible sense of pride from the engineers that, that built these aircrafts. And I'm really happy to see that uh, that pride carries over to the C-17. So you've had this really I- interesting life. You, you followed Neil Armstrong's footsteps to Purdue. And then you worked on the C-17. And you've later in life, you started going on all different types of experiences. You visit six out of the seven continents around the world. How have those experiences shaped you as an individual? I really, really love traveling. So I really miss it right now with all the air restrictions and not being able to get on an airplane and fly to some exciting destination. 
When I'm in a different country, I really try to do as much walking as I possibly can. And I like to walk around the city streets and see where people shop and where they live and where they eat and how they interact with each other. I have seen immense wealth and I have seen immense poverty. But what I've always been amazed by is how friendly everyone is everywhere I go. In Japan, I think they're the friendliest people in the world. In Singapore, it's probably the cleanest country in the world. It's amazing. And then when I was in Morocco, every meal I had was the best meal I'd ever had. The food was just remarkable. And then Europe, it's just everything is so amazing. I remember when I went to Westminster Abbey, I did not realize at first that the tombs were actually, some of the tombs were in the floor. And when I finally realized that I looked down and I was standing on Sir Isaac Newton's tomb. <laughs> so that really shocked me. But really, these experiences have helped me to better understand cultures around the world and appreciate their uniqueness. We may all speak different languages and wear different clothes and look different from one another, but we all laugh and smile the same. We're all pretty much the same. And did you have any like aha de- defining moments uh, when you're walking around the cities or it took you down a deep dive around a certain book that just completely changed your thinking on things? Like it was, was there anything on the journey that inspired you to read a book? So I travel a lot as well, and I love to walk and kind of just explore different things. And and then I end up like reading about in, in books and going down and trying to learn more about that culture. <laughs> well, actually, it kind of went the other way around. I was watching um, a movie about this Akita in Japan, and I'm drawing a blank on the dog's name at the moment, but uh, it was a movie about Richard with Richard Gere and the Akita that when the owner died, the dog waited at the train station for like 20 or 15 or 20 years for the master to come home who never came home. And this dog was so revered in Japan that they built a statue for the dog. And so the next time I went to Tokyo, I got on a a subway station and I went to visit that statue of that dog. And I have a picture of myself with that statue. And then, then we got lost. I was with a colleague and we got lost coming back, but the Japanese people were so friendly. They helped us figure out where we were to help us get back to where we needed to be. Well, that's wonderful. There's, there's great walking cities like Venice where where you can get lost and the locals do a really nice job of helping you to find out where you need to go. And as an individual who travels a lot, I'm sure you faced your share of tarmac delays. How can an aircraft health management system help to mitigate tarmac delays? Well, one of the most frustrating things for me is if I'm sitting on an airplane and the pilot comes across the PA and announces that our flight's going to be delayed because there's a mechanical issue. Now, that really frustrates me because I know a lot of these delays are preventable. Now, today's aircraft are capable of producing a lot of data that provides valuable information about the aircraft systems and components and how they are performing and operating. Someone really needs to be looking at that data and making a decision about when to perform preventative maintenance. Now, an aircraft health management system can analyze this data and then look for features in the data that indicate that either a component has failed or is about to fail. And that will allow maintenance people to actually schedule that maintenance when the aircraft is like on an overnight, when there's not a whole bunch of passengers on board the aircraft, and then be able to perform that maintenance to prevent that service delay or cancellation. Is the data being analyzed by the airlines and the aerospace industry in real time? Some of the data comes off the aircraft real time. That is usually more something that's time sensitive, like like diagnostic data, for example. Um, But usually the predictive health monitoring is done post-flight. 
So an engineer at an airline or another company such as Collins is looking at the data from those systems and making an assessment about the health state of a component or a system and then making a maintenance recommendation. So a lot of that is done post-flight rather than real-time. So is it a fair statement for your an individual traveling that with a predictive maintenance system uh, with aircraft health management that it will possibly help to eliminate tarmac delays and they can have a smoother experience? Oh, absolutely. So ideally, again, if we can predict a failure before it occurs, you can schedule that repair to be done. That way, when passengers get on the airplane, they can be assured that their airplane is ready to go. Now, there will always be the occasional mechanical event that happens that can't be predicted. But those, I mean, those will happen. But what we want to do is try and reduce the number of ones that are predictable that have some sort of indication in advance that let us know that something is about to fail or not able to perform whatever its intended function. For example, there might be a component that can still continue operating, but if it can't provide the airflow that it needs to provide to the aircraft to cool the aircraft down and you're sitting in Dubai, nobody wants to get on an airplane that's 130 degrees, even though the you know the air conditioning unit or the APU providing the, the power is still operating. It's not performing its function. So that's what we're trying to prevent. You're making life much nicer and easier for the paying passenger. Absolutely, yes. Since health management solutions will enable predictive maintenance and preemptive repairs to reduce unscheduled maintenance, reduce service interruptions, and optimize shop visits for an airline's fleet of aircraft, will you please kindly talk about how health management technology is making this reality for Collins Aerospace Partners? For a listener who's really not familiar with predictive analytics, could you kind of share some more detail on how the predictive analytics work? So predictive analytics are really where the true value is in health monitoring. So we're taking data and we're looking for features in the data that indicate that a anomaly has occurred or servicing is needed or a component is about to fail or will not be able to perform its intended function. And what we do with the predictive analytics is once we detect these conditions, these anomalies, then we try and predict how much time remains until that component can no longer perform its intended function. And we call that remaining useful life estimation. So what we're trying to do is estimate how much time we have in flight hours or cycles with some uncertainty around that. And once we know that, then we can provide that information to the airline and they can make a decision at that point if they want to bring the aircraft in and perform the maintenance right away, or if they want to keep the airplane flying for a period of time and perform that maintenance at a later time when the aircraft is scheduled to be in for maintenance at a specific time. Of course, they are taking the risk. It's their decision on when to perform that maintenance. But we can provide them through our health monitoring solutions a recommendation of what needs to be done and in what time frame it should be done. In the years prior to health management solutions, how would a maintenance crew monitor the health of an aircraft? Well, believe it or not, back in the early 1970s, they used to do a lot of preventative maintenance. In fact, they did excessive preventative maintenance. And as a result, they actually made the aircraft less reliable because they were doing so much maintenance, they were disturbing systems. And actually, that was causing more components and systems to fail. But things started changing in the 1970s with what we call maintenance steering group three that changed the way maintenance practices are handled. 
and also health monitoring started to come about. So in the 1970s, early 1970s, the E32 Committee for Propulsion Systems Health Management, which is an SAE technical standards committee, was founded. And this committee developed recommended practices for doing engine health monitoring. So what started changing is we started doing maintenance on the aircraft based on what the data was telling us that needed to be done. And that actually was a better approach to doing maintenance rather than just going out and changing everything and doing everything all at once. And it actually made the aircraft far more reliable. So now we have a lot more data available from the aircraft, not just from engines, and we're taking that same technology and applying it to other aircraft systems like the air management system or the electric power system and trying to do the same thing with those health monitoring solutions. When an airline makes the decision to implement a PHM system, does the entire aircraft have to be redesigned from the ground up or can sensors be added to an existing aircraft? A PHM solution can be added to an existing aircraft. There are many retrofit solutions that are available and have been certified for installation on certain aircraft types. Now these solutions enable data to be captured and stored and then transmitted off the airplane to a ground-based solution for health monitoring. Now these solutions usually do require some installation of hardware, which is new sensors, wiring, and possibly a data acquisition unit itself. And then there may also be some software changes, but there are retrofit solutions that are available out there for certain aircraft types. Again, this has to go through a certification process because it's post the original aircraft certification, and we call this a supplemental type certification, but those are available out there. Collins offers one called the Aircraft Interface Device, for example, is an example of a health monitoring data connectivity solution. Do you need regulatory changes to implement a health management system? You don't need regulatory changes. However, I have some very exciting news. We have some regulatory changes that are coming that are really going to change the way airlines can use health monitoring data. So, for example, the FAA has an advisory circular that is going to be published this year that provides guidance for establishing an integrated aircraft health management program. Now, this is an authorized IAHM program. And accompanying this advisory circular is an FAA order that provides instructions for maintenance crews to sign off on the work that is performed by an IAHM program. And then in 2022, the MSG3 analysis will be updated to include an additional level of analysis that will allow airlines to use an alternative means of compliance to, to the scheduled maintenance task and requir required inspection items, meaning they can use health monitoring data to predict when a component needs servicing or when a component is degrading or when there's a hidden failure, which is one that the pilot can't see. And if they can detect all of that with enough lead time that maintenance th can be performed, then they can avoid doing a scheduled maintenance task or required inspection interval. And this is very important because this can also be used to extend the life of a life-limited part. So we have some parts on the aircraft that have to be removed and replaced every so many hours or cycles. And if you can use IHM data to monitor that part, then you can get what's called a maintenance credit and avoid having to remove that part on a scheduled interval or at least extend that interval. You may not be able to eliminate it altogether, but you can extend it. But this is really significant change 
because airlines really haven't had the authority to use health monitoring data to alter their maintenance programs. They haven't been able to use it as what we call an alternative means of compliance for maintenance. And this is the direct result of a lot of hard work that's been done by the SAE E32 committee, HM1 committee for aircraft health management, and the Structural Health Management Committee. So it's very exciting to see this change coming this year. Who regulates the maintenance credit? Is that the FAA or, or another governmental body? All of all the 10 major airworthiness regulators are involved in this change. So I mentioned the advisory circular, the FAA advisory circular. So that'll impact the operators here in the United States. But the ASA is engaged in this. Um, all of the airworthiness authorities in Japan, Australia, for example, are all involved in the changes that are becoming out in the MSG3 analysis. And they will also be issuing their similar guidance for airlines and for maintenance personnel. And when these changes are come and they're approved by the regulators, will aircraft still have to go in for heavy maintenance? Yes. So what's going to be different about heavy maintenance is, and actually this is for any maintenance check, if you're able to avoid having to do a certain maintenance task that would be normally scheduled for that heavy maintenance check, for example, if you can avoid doing that because you're able to monitor it using health monitoring data, then that means you have less work that you have to perform during the maintenance check. And less work means less cost for the airlines. And, the, and we all know the airlines need cost savings uh, today based on the, the current state of the world and the, their economic situation. Um, will you please kindly share some examples of, an, of a major airline using a health monitoring system? Every airline is using some sort of health monitoring solution today. So there are many, many systems that have been in use for many, many years that have saved the airlines millions of dollars. Again, health monitoring really started with the engine manufacturers, with Pratt Whitney, GE's, Rolls-Royce, and Honeywell. And they have really evolved their health monitoring solutions from being just simple engine condition monitoring solutions that analyzed a few parameters to today's systems that are analyzing hundreds of parameters. And they have actually been able to really move out of being a diagnostics-focused solution to really being predictive and prognostics. And they are investing heavily into intelligent predictive analytics, and they're using machine learning and artificial intelligence. So some of the ones that you might recognize off the top of your head would be Pratt Whitney's EngineWise or Rolls-Royce's Intelligent Engine, GE's PN, I'm sorry, PHM Plus, and Honeywell's Predictive Trend Monitoring and Diagnostics. Now, likewise, the airframe manufacturers like Boeing and Airbus and suppliers like Collins and Honeywell are also developing solutions now for aircraft health management. So like the engine condition monitoring systems, we are now doing this for the aircraft systems. We're doing it for air management systems, fuel management, landing systems, electric power, and hydraulics, plus many more. And it used to be there wasn't much data available from these systems, but that has really, really changed. And now an aircraft such as like, the, I think the A350 can produce 350,000 parameters on every single flight. So that's an amazing amount of data. So now there is a desire to be able to reduce maintenance costs and delays and cancellations for all those other aircraft systems and components, not just engines. So there's a lot of investment there in doing predictive analytics for aircraft systems and components. And some of the big ones that you might recognize are Boeing's Airplane Health Management or Airbus's Skywise. 
and Collins's ASHM in Essentia and Honeywell's Forge. And what were some of the lessons learned during this early development and the eventual standardization? There has always been a trade-off between budget and how many sensors and data are needed to actually support the development of accurate algorithms and models. And engineers and data scientists have really learned how to optimize their design requirements so that they can capture the right amount of data at the time that they need to record it. They have built physics-based models that leverage domain knowledge and are very accurate but are difficult to build and require a lot of computing power. They have also built data-driven models that are based on domain knowledge that has been learned through a tuning of a lot of noisy data over a long period of time. But what they have learned, however, is that hybrid models, which combine both physics-based models and data-driven models, tend to be more accurate and less costly. So they are really leaning towards these hybrid models this day. Also, for the purposes of prognostics, there really is not any need to analyze data on board the aircraft. The ability to store that data and then automatically download it for processing at the end of the flight is what's really important. Now, prognostics does not need to be performed real time because it's predicting a future state. So prognostics does need to be timely, but it does not need to be real time like diagnostics. Also, data interoperability has been an issue for a long time in health management. Many systems on board the aircraft, well, they simply were never designed to talk to one another. They may be designed to talk to a specific avionics bus using a specific standard and protocol. And then that bus would communicate what few parameters it needed to to other systems. But there was never really a requirement for a lot of data communication. So we're in a position now where we have data interoperability issues just coming from the same aircraft. So what we really need is to focus on more using standards on a certain aircraft and developing the data model for that aircraft. And we're really, we're learning this the hard way, but I think we're really moving towards doing that and having more opportunities to use open source software. If you think about it, an aircraft takes 10 years from initial conceptual design to entry into service. And technology really, really advances over a 10 year period. I mean, would you wanna buy a cell phone today that was based on technology from 2010? No, I, I definitely would not. But this is the reality we're looking at for airplanes. So when they design an airplane, they really need to take into consideration, can the software be modified or the hardware be modified and upgraded over the years to keep up with the rapidly changing technology? And speaking of keeping up with rapidly changing technology and pivoting from health management, you were involved with a wonderful program called Project Scientist, which is having a positive impact on future engineers who will build the technology of the future. Will you please kindly talk about this project and the role that you have played? So Project Scientist is an organization that was founded in 2011, and Collins has been a corporate sponsor for the last two years, and I have participated both years. Now, the purpose of Project Scientist is to inspire young girls to pursue an education and a career in STEM, and the target age group is 4 to 12 years old. So normally, Collins would host these girls on site at our various locations around the United States, and they would have the opportunity to take tours of our labs and participate in science demonstrations and ask questions of engineers, female engineers in particular. But this year, because of COVID, everything was switched to a virtual lab. 
and Collins did participate with our other aerospace peers in the Aerospace Engineering Lab, which was held July 27th through the 31st. And we did conduct demonstrations virtually, and we had speakers, and I was one of the lunchtime speakers for the 10 to 12 age group. So that was a lot of fun for me. I had some really great questions. I had a very diverse group of girls. I have no idea where they were located in the world, but it was just really a fantastic experience to be a part of that. I really enjoyed it, and I look forward to next year. And outside of Project Scientist, how can we get more children interested in science and engineering? Collins does sponsor other STEM activities, which I'm sure other companies do as well. But some of the other two that we really are into or introduce a girl to engineering and girls that code. And STEM is really one of the pillars of our Collins corporate social responsibility team. It is so important that we engage young minds at an early age so that we can all benefit from having a diverse workforce in aerospace. Now, I have personally met several data science students that are still in college and they aspire to work for Facebook or Google after they graduate. And I believe their company choice actually reflects their personal exposure to the products that these companies make. So what that says to me is we need to get our message across to them that there are some very cool and exciting and well-paid jobs and careers in STEM, especially in aerospace. And we need to expose these children to these aerospace programs through other outreach programs, through quality TV programming, internet webinars. We want to inspire them to get into aerospace and, and participate in things like NASA's Moon to Mars programs. So I think it's a matter of exposure. Yep, and I agree with the the exposure and coding is cool and you're seeing everything with what SpaceX is doing and it's getting this viral stuff on social media and kids are, are looking at this. And so it's really going to be a big driver, I think, to get more younger children interested in, in, in space and everything going on at NASA. And going back to commercial aviation, when do you see commercial aviation rebounding? Well, everything I am seeing and hearing and reading is saying that commercial aviation really isn't going to rebound until 2023. I think that once a vaccination is available, we will certainly see domestic leisure travel return to hopefully pre-pandemic levels by 2021. International travel is going to take longer simply because countries are recovering from COVID at a different rate. But what is really missing from this whole equation is the lucrative business traveler. And what we have found through all these virtual meetings is companies have realized by deploying these virtual tools and putting up the firewalls and everything that's necessary to secure their data, that a virtual meeting is a lot less expensive than a face-to-face -face meeting. In addition, a lot of companies have obviously had some financial losses from 2020, so discretionary spending is going to be down for a while. So that's my biggest concern is domestic travelers, I'm sorry, business travelers in particular, are not going to be getting out there and flying anytime soon. So I could see where 2023 is probably a pretty accurate estimate as to when we might see things return to normal. That's a, that's a uh, really good insight, and we appreciate that. I want to stay with, with the insights here for a minute. And What is the future of aerospace, in your opinion, and what role do you see urban air mobility playing in that future? Well, I'm very excited about urban air mobility because there is so much work already underway to advance the technologies that will support urban air mobility, such as battery and electric-powered aircraft and autonomous systems 
connectivity solutions, additive manufacturing, and next generation air traffic management. So there's a lot of work already underway in those areas. I believe personal air vehicles, which are really about the size of a small helicopter, will be our next mode of transportation. They will use clean energy and they will operate safely in our skies. I think we will see people using these small personal vehicles to to fly short distances in cities as well as from the suburbs back into cities. And I live out in the countryside and I would love to be able to take a personal air vehicle up to the Charlotte area, up to the airport, instead of having to make the hour and a half drive. The real challenge will be is how can we make these vehicles affordable for private citizens or affordable for rideshare services. But again, there is just a lot that's going on right now that supports this whole development of urban air mobility. So I'm very excited about it. I definitely see it happening in my lifetime. That's wonderful. And on a previous podcast, we had Mark Moore from Uber, who's working on the Elevate program, shared a lot of deep insights into urban air mobility for us. And as we look to wrap up this conversation, I'd like to ask you this, this one final question. What advice would you have for young women who want to grow up to be engineers? Well, when I was growing up, I did not have any exposure to engineering. I just knew that I wanted to do something different. Now, I was of the age where I was forced to take home economics, which I hated, and I refused to take typing and shorthand when I got to high school. I really, I had science classes, but I never really had to even do a science project. So I never really had any hands-on experience with anything science. So I know times are very different now, but I suspect that there's still many young girls out there that lack exposure to science in a hands-on way. And because there still is not a whole lot of women in engineering, they probably don't have exposure to a female engineering role model either. So I want these girls to know that they too can become an engineer. They just need to really take the science and math classes. They need to get involved in outreach programs through their school or through their community and just have the confidence to do it. You can do it. Just because you don't have a parent that's an engineer doesn't mean that you can't be an engineer. As we've heard on this conversation, health management systems will improve aircraft uptime. And Rhonda, we thank you so much for coming on the SAE podcast and sharing your wonderful insights. Thank you so much. Thank you, Grayson. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to SAE's Tomorrow Today podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate it, share your feedback, we love comments, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information on SAE and SAE podcasts, be sure to visit sae.org forward slash podcast and follow SAE on social media at SAEINTL on Twitter and Instagram and at SAE International on Facebook and LinkedIn. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.